The first era of the Brooklyn Nets will always be defined by maybe the most lopsided trade in NBA history. Looking to hit the instant contender button for the 2012-13 season, the Nets sent a king's ransom to the Boston Celtics for aging superstars Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. It, of course, backfired spectacularly. Brooklyn made a solitary second-round playoff appearance, while the Celtics enjoyed a bevy of lottery picks. It set the Brooklyn franchise back for years, but it might have been completely avoidable if not for another Nets trade the season prior. If only the team had been a little less reckless when it came to lottery protections. Then, still in New Jersey, the Nets knew that their upcoming move to the big city needed some star power. And to attract star power, you need cap space. A deal was struck with Portland at the 2012 trade deadline that would send a few salary-eating players out west, along with the Nets' upcoming first-round pick. The Nets did what they thought was their due diligence and put top three protection on the selection, meaning that if the pick were first, second, or third, the Nets would hold on to it for another season. Confident that the draft was so top-heavy that such limited protection was all that was necessary, the Nets completed the deal. And while the pick didn't land in the top three, it still wound up sixth. Turns out that the sixth pick still carries a lot of value. And in this case, that value turned out to be four-time All-Star and Portland icon Damian Lillard. In another universe, maybe one of the magical moments Dame has produced in his career would have belonged to Brooklyn as well. Instead, the Nets' decision had led to one of the game's great what-might-have-beens. I'm Ben Shields. I'm Paul Michaelman, and this is CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. In this episode, we're taking a closer look at the value of pick protections in the NBA draft and how your favorite team just might be doing it all wrong. CounterPoints is brought to you by Ticketmaster, the world's leading ticketing software and services company. Ticketmaster is trusted by thousands of artists, teams, and venues across 29 countries, connecting more than 1 billion fans and powering half a billion tickets each year. That's 15 tickets per second to live events around the globe. So whether you're grabbing seats to a must-win game, catching the hottest show in town, or giving someone you love an experience they'll remember forever, head over to Ticketmaster for 100% safe, verified tickets to your next unforgettable event. Because live only happens once. The NBA draft is all about value. Just a couple of selections higher or lower could be the difference between a franchise-altering superstar or another half-dozen seasons selecting in the lottery. The importance of having dynamic players on entry-level contracts means a high draft pick might be the most valuable asset a team could own. But when it comes time to move these assets around, value sometimes gets thrown out the window. It's easy enough to place a top 10, top 5, or even top 1 protection on a draft pick and toss it into a trade, out of sight, out of mind, so to say. But when that pick eventually conveys, just how often is the team that gave the pick up or agreed to the specific protections regretting their decision? To help address that question, I spoke with Ben Foster, who presented his research on valuing protections of NBA draft picks at the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Ben, thanks for joining the program. Hey, Paul, thanks for having me. And I'm glad to continue the long line of Ben's that you've interviewed for the podcast. This actually will be the last Ben. I'm putting a ban on it after today. <laughs> so okay. let's, um, 
Let's talk about something more interesting than Ben's. So let's talk about your research. What prompted you to look at NBA draft protections in the first place? What was the moment of inspiration? So I was probably sitting on a couch. Um, I'm a graduate student, and I was a graduate student back in 2015, um, following the NBA and following the trade deadline. And I don't know if you remember the 2015 trade deadline, but there were a lot of trades, and a lot of those involved draft picks. Um, and a lot of those draft picks had protections, and they were things like lottery protected and top 10 protected. Um, and I think I remember sitting, uh, saying to my roommate at the time, who was a co-author, on the paper, uh, that seems really odd that all these uh, pick protections keep coming out at round numbers. Uh, so we uh, combed together the last uh, five or 10 years of, of traded NBA draft picks um, and plotted out the number of picks that had each level of protection. And what we noticed is that lots and lots of NBA draft picks are protected at top five, top 10, and top 14. Uh, there's a few top three, and there's not really many in between. Uh, maybe one or two, mostly zero at, at all those other levels. Um, and this struck me as likely inefficient. Um, and so we decided uh, to kind of jump in and see if we could uh, kind of think about why that might be the case. And then we uh, designed a tool to try to value more precisely uh, how much draft uh, pick protections were worth. Well, great. So let's go at this kind of one one piece at a time. You know, when when you um, when you reveal right what the data found, it's one of those kind of surprising, not surprising things, right? Surprising yeah. that that there is such a concentration, but when you look at where the concentrations are, top three, five, ten, these kind of natural sets that are familiar to us, fourteen because that's the number of players in the lottery, kind of makes sense. But I'm curious um, whether or not this is. Um, how this connects to other research. Um, did you draw on other research? Did you kind of vet this against other studies outside of sports analytics? Yeah, so, so we end up employing a lot of tools from, from systems uh, modeling and from finance uh, to come up with our model. Um, we operated under the hypothesis that at least part of the problem might be um, imperfect information or imprecise information, that GMs don't have a way of precisely valuing uh, the how pick protections change the value of an NBA draft pick. And as such, we, we built a model uh, to try to contribute some information there. Um, whether that information becomes private information and is, is used uh, to a single team's advantage or is public information um, is a, another interesting discussion. Um, but there, there are other reasons you could think of why teams end up on these, these round numbers. I, I've thought of this kind of outside of the scope of, of our actual research, uh, but I think there's quite a bit of evidence in kind of managerial uh, economics uh, and finance that uh, managers uh, sometimes will operate um, in ways that aren't optimal for uh, the firm or organization. Therefore, because their incentive structures um, lead them to to make much more risk averse decisions than perhaps the, the firm or organization uh, desires. And so I, I've thought about that as we uh, consider uh kind of further steps, future steps with our work, um, that one reason teams might be ending up on these round numbers is just because the the GMs are, are somewhat risk averse um, and don't want to do something kind of outside of the, the norm. Intuitively, um, it's easy to agree with that point. And of course, we've seen lots of other evidence of that in the management of sports, right? Absent actual data um, to drive a decision, GMs are risk averse and then also tend to follow kind of a herd mentality, which doesn't make them a special class of managers. We see that across management, as you've said. Right. So let's turn to the tool. Um, 
talk to me about um, how you built the tool, what it does, and what you found. Yeah, so so the idea here was to to see if we could price or find the value of draft pick protections. There's lots of ways you could conceive of doing that. One way is to value NBA draft picks and then value NBA draft picks with protections on them and then take the difference of those two things and that helps you identify the the value add or subtract of the protection itself. Um, so quickly we we went into kind of building out a whole a tool that can value or put some value on an NBA draft pick future NBA draft pick for a specific team uh, in a specific round of the draft. And then we uh, built out uh, mechanisms for adding in protections. Um, And so to do this, um, you have to account for lots of future uncertainties um, about quite quite a few different things. So there's three, I think, three main sources of of uncertainty that we had to capture. Um, So the first is uh, near future team performance. So if you imagine a trade at the trade deadline, for example, there are 20 some odd games left for every team in the NBA. And we wanted to capture the likelihood uh, that the team that traded away a pick would end up in a particular position at the end of the year in the standings, because that's going to determine what either what pick you get or where you end up in the lottery order. Um, so, so that was one uh, piece of team performance uh, that we needed to capture. Uh, the other piece of team performance is future year performance. So pick protections um, obviously can roll out into uh, way into the future. And so right, a, a pick that's protected, say, top five, if it ends up, uh, the pick ends up in the top five, it often rolls over to the next year. And we needed to figure out how likely a team was to finish in a particular spot in subsequent years. And so there's a different method uh, for doing that. And then the third source of uncertainty is how good is a player going to be that gets ends up being picked with that a particular pick asset. Um, so we looked at historic data um, of players and where they were picked in the draft to try to uh, pull out some some information about, right, you get the first pick, it may be Anthony Bennett, it may be LeBron James, um, so you're not guaranteed a certain value out of any uh, particular pick position. So we pulled all those things together um, into a Monte Carlo simulation format uh, that allowed us to combine all that uncertainty into a single distribution of possible outcomes. Uh, we measure them uh, using win shares. Um, you could use kind of whatever player value metric you want. Win shares is fairly easy to interpret, and it was easy for us to get data on, uh, which is why we we used it. Um, so we end up with this distribution, and then we put that into a, fin- a financial asset pricing model that allowed for us to account for some things like risk preferences and different types of asset classes, um, and allowed us to boil it down into a single kind of win shares number uh, that we assign. Uh, as the value of the pick. And along the way, we incorporate whether it's protected or not um, and what levels it's protected. So let's talk about the, the, the wind shares for a minute. Where are or are there kind of natural, consistent points of differentiation, like wind shares among the top three, there's a break, or the top six, there's a break. So where did you find kind of the, the key differentiators? Yes, so there's quite a bit of noise in that data. Um, we're using the past, I think, 30-some-odd years uh, of information. So we've only got 30 picks at each level. Um, so we've got a lot of things going on. So what you find when we plot out the the probability distributions of win shares generated by a given pick position um, is that a lot of picks will cross each other. So suddenly the third pick often looks a lot better than the second pick. Um, and so we had to do some things to kind of smooth out um, those uh, attributes, because we didn't want in, in our model 
for it to magically reward getting the ninth pick, for example. The ninth pick turns out looks uh, a lot better a lot of the time than the sixth, seventh, or eighth pick, um, at least in terms of player performance. Um, so we uh, we did some things, used some some statistical methods to smooth out those distributions, and then we grouped them together into a, a few categories, uh, what we call asset classes in the paper. Uh, so we identified uh, seven different asset classes. So those are groups of picks that seem to perform similarly. Um, and those uh, ended up being pick one, kind of stands by itself. Uh, pick ones tend to perform a lot better than all the other picks. Um, then two and three look pretty similar, uh, as do four and five. And then the groups tend to get a little bigger. So six through 10 uh, is pretty similar. And then it's 11 through 18, 19 through 24, and 25 through 30. Um, so when we put that into our modeling uh, framework, we end up assigning different risk preferences to each of those um, asset classes uh, that we sort of calibrated or tried to calibrate using some historic data, uh, though we have some plans to kind of beef up those uh, methodologies and calibrations. So when you um, when you look at those asset classes, how does the value of protecting any one of those classes get affected by the number of years out where that protection is going to be applied? Yeah, so that um, that depends a lot on where the team, uh, how good the team is now. So as, as we look forward into the future, and the further we look forward in the future, we kind of see the uncertainty or the variability in outcomes spread out quite a bit, right? It's hard to say what, uh, say, the Milwaukee Bucks uh, are going to be like in, in five years. If you had to bet where they would finish in the NBA, that would be a tough uh, assessment to make. And so this uncertainty kind of tends towards teams kind of migrating towards the middle um, and reduces the likelihood of, of, the, uh, of the extreme outcomes. Uh, so really good teams this year, uh, we don't necessarily expect to keep being good um, five years out into the future. Um, and so the the protections tend to kind of converge on on something that's universally good uh, out into the future, or it's good for kind of all teams. Uh, and there's a really what what it turns out uh, to be is there's a really high value in protecting, say, top one protected, um, because that first pick is so valuable to teams. Right? It's consistently so much better than the players picked um, in the the, the later picks. Um, and so that, those are players that kind of change your franchise. And so. Uh, by protecting top one, you kind of recover a lot of value in, in a traded away pick, especially as years extend out. What about the projected quality and depth of the draft itself? Is that a factor? Yes, it would be a big one if you were using this as a, an actual decision-making tool. Um, and we've got some, uh, we're working on ways to try to, t to change the, the structure of the tool such that uh, folks can use it more readily in a decision-making process. Um, we do not account for projected uh, draft class quality um, because uh, I'm not really a basketball. Uh, there's lots of people that are much smarter about basketball than I am and probably have much better assessments. I know teams have much better assessments of these things. So we didn't attempt to do that, um, though it wouldn't be hard to add um, to adjust kind of the, the performance you might expect out of uh, the different uh, pick positions. So, Ben, should teams factor in salary ramifications when valuing protections? The number one pick is going to cost something like two and a half times what the number 10 pick will cost in that initial three-year rookie deal. 
Yeah, that's definitely a factor. And, and I think we've captured that in, in some of our risk preference calculations for the different asset classes. Um, but you would maybe consider those things as kind of an additional factor as you're negotiating a trade, right? We envision this tool as useful uh, for a, perhaps it's a GM who's negotiating a trade and wants to determine kind of an optimal place to set protections based on the player they're trying to trade for or whatever the tr trade uh, assets uh, that are involved. Um, and if you, uh, one consideration from the team's perspective is going to be salary. Uh, we've built this tool kind of generically. Uh, so for kind of, for any team, uh, obviously if you're using this in a, in a real decision-making capacity, there'd be lots of other factors related to your team uh, that you'd want to capture. But we do capture, I think, some of those salary implications um, in our, our risk preference uh, part of the model. So is it possible that the whole practice of protecting draft picks is just fraught, that there are so many variables and so much unpredictability that it might be better not to do it at all? There is a lot of unpredictability. Um, I would say, and I, I think that's increased with the new lottery probabilities. The lottery um, just happened not not too many weeks ago. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about how interesting it was from a kind of viewer perspective because lots of teams were moved around. And this increase, it was speculated afterwards um, by a variety of folks that this increase in uncertainty and variability in, in outcome uh, would lead to kind of a chilled market for protecting picks or something like every pick would be traded with a de facto top five protection. Um, I actually think it should act the, in, in the opposite way. Um, and and I'll, I'll try to make, uh, make this make sense. Um, but if you imagine the role that pick protections are playing in a trade, um, they are uh, this, this asset, this thing that used to be one asset, that, uh, which is the draft pick, the, say the 2020 uh, first round draft pick, that now can take on all sorts of values based on the different protections that you put on it. So if you're negotiating for a particular player and you're trying to come up with some package of assets that's of equal value to that player, um, this draft pick, uh, a draft pick with your ability to protect it becomes really, really valuable because you can perfectly tailor, theoretically, you could perfectly tailor uh, your, your asset package to the value of that player. As variability and outcomes goes up, the values you could could change that that uh, pick to become also becomes higher. You end up with a bigger range of possible values your pick could take on, um, and that theoretically should facilitate more trading or more likelihood that you could end up with an asset package uh, of equal value. Now, with that said, I don't know that I trust that to actually happen. Um, I would uh, expect, especially given our previous discussion about. Um, other reasons why teams might be protecting picks at round numbers, namely risk aversion of GMs um, or, or other factors, um, that this might actually chill the market, at least initially. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, I, I have another kind of speculative thought uh, that pick protections might uh, be regulated away, or at least in large part regulated away by the NBA at some point. Uh, there's lots of NBA regulations that emit trade. Um, and one of the things that uh, the team still have are these pick protections that enable auto enable more trading. Um, but as it gets kind of crazier and crazier, um, I could imagine the NBA uh, not wanting uh, teams to fans of teams to be going into the lottery and having, say, six different slices of a bunch of other teams picks and not really knowing 
uh, what might happen. Uh, it might get quite complicated. Although maybe that would make the the lottery show uh, be more exciting and have have better uh, viewership. But um, anyways, there, there's a lot kind of at play. Um, and yes, I, I do think the the change in, in variability or the increase in variability of outcomes might chill the market in practice. Um, but theoretically, I would actually have expected it to to make picks uh, pick protections more valuable practice. So, Ben, I want to come back to those kind of key breakpoints in wind shares. Um, correct me if I have this correct. There's a break after one, a break after three, a break after five, and a break after ten. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So what's really interesting is those are all, quote, round numbers when it comes to our thinking, right? Those, are, those, those actually don't vary wildly from the current practice, which, which on the one hand is interesting, but it also suggests that, the, that, that for the team that is accepting the protection, it feels like this model has some, there's some near-term things where a team could exploit this. Yeah. So when we, we discovered this, I thought, well, there's our, there's part of our answer. That might explain why these uh, picks are kind of clustering, protections are clustering at these numbers. Um, I, I still think uh, there is that that just assigns what risk preference value we put in the model. There's still a, a bit of variation between the different pick numbers. Six is still better than than pick 10, uh, for example. Um, but I, I do think one thing I, I think we have figured out uh, in, in pursuing this is that there are probably a lot of assets out there that are uh, under or overvalued or misvalued in some way. Um, and smart teams uh, can pick up on that. And, and perhaps um, we, we kind of mentioned the paper, there might be quote unquote arbitrage opportunities that might be stating it a little bit too um positively uh it's difficult to arbitrage a market that's relatively illiquid illiquid um but uh, there there would be perhaps some some low-hanging fruit and you've seen some teams um, in at least recent years who've started to assign more and more complicated pick protections on the picks they trade away um, and i think that's evidence that those teams are probably thinking a little bit more uh seriously about what pick protections do and, and how valuable they are so if you were to continue this line of research, what would be the next kind of set of, set of data or element of the tool that you'd be pursuing? Yeah, so there's, uh, we've conceived of this not quite as a, um, as a proof of concept. It's a couple of layers beyond that. Um, but we had relatively limited resources doing this on a laptop on the side. Um, it's not uh, my or my uh, research collaborator's full-time uh, job. So we chose methods that were relatively easy to implement um, and perhaps aren't the most precise or the most accurate. Um, so there's a couple ways uh, we would improve those, including ways we characterize various bits of uncertainty. Um, I think I also mentioned uh, that we'd like to build it, uh, build the, the tool out so that it's a little bit more uh, kind of ready to be used in a, a decision-making capacity. So that it would include things like toggles for, uh, team-specific uh, risk preferences or, or, or uh, feelings, right? So things about draft class quality, perhaps uh, it wouldn't be too hard. I don't, don't think to add some some toggles that allow you to adjust uh, some of these distributions so that they align with expectations. For example, this year you might be uh, adjusting that first pick out a little bit, making it a little bit more valuable, um, and the other, the second, third, fourth, and fifth picks back a little bit. I think a lot of folks think it's a relatively top. A heavy draft. Um, and then uh, 
kind of beyond this specific tool, I think we've thought of uh, a lot of opportunities uh, to think about non-player assets in the NBA um, and try to come up with valuation models for those things. Uh, there's not a lot of attention on on non-player assets. Um, there's relative dearth of data there, which might be one reason. Um, and it's also not kind of the main uh, player. It's it's kind of fun to, to study players and coaches because that's leading to winning, um, but studying how uh, GMs make trades and operate um, and sign contracts is a little bit uh, less fun. But I think there'd be lots of opportunity uh, to think about these non-player assets, things like bird rights and contract structures, um, and try to find systematic ways to quantify uh, their value. There's been a long discussion about moral hazard in the NBA with respect to draft position and teams tanking um, to get um, the lowest draft pick possible or in the age of the lottery to get the highest um, number of ping pong balls right in the lottery. How, how does moral hazard play out um, with protecting picks? Yeah, so uh, I imagine it's kind of the same phenomenon we see with teams trying to get uh, better uh, lottery odds, um, that once a pick is protected, uh, for example, uh, the Lakers in 2015 traded away, or in 2013, they traded away a 2015 pick that was top five protected. They would have had a lot of incentive in 2015 to stay within that top five protection so that they could keep their pick. Um, and so there's we've discussed uh, what how we might try to capture this additional incentive to, to keep losing. And we don't actually capture this explicitly in our model, um, and we're thinking about ways uh, of addressing it. I mean, one thing that works in our favor is that every team around the worst five teams in the league has incentive to lose at the end of the year. And so perhaps it wouldn't uh, change the distribution of outcomes all that much um, that the Lakers have slightly more incentive uh, to keep losing. Um, but the other thing that I, I've long wondered um, is when in, uh, some enterprising uh, GM is going to trade away a pick uh, where he trades away uh, half, uh, the, all the even numbers to one team and all the odd numbers to another team, right? theoretically kind of eliminating uh, his own moral hazard to, to behave in a certain way. And I think that would be a, a, a highly unlikely scenario, but a very interesting and cool one. If there are any GMs out there who want to do that, um, I think that would be uh, quite fun. Ben Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. This has been CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. And if you have an idea for a topic we should cover or a guest we should invite, please drop us a line at counterpoints at mit.edu. Counterpoints is produced by Mary Dew. Our theme music was composed by Matt Reed. Our coordinating producer is Mackenzie Wise. Our crack researcher is Jake Menashe. And our maven of marketing is Desiree Barry.